tonight we're going to talk about uh, what I'll call Mythmas, <laughs> which is, it's like Christmas, but we're going to focus on the idea of myths surrounding Christmas, myths surrounding Christmas. And we'll, the idea is that we'll, uh, we're going to myth bust the, the subject of Christmas. And this will be different than actually previous message I gave last year on is Christmas pagan. We went over that, so I'm not going to recover all that same territory. Um, that's, that's available. So I'm going to talk about the biggest myths, and I'm going to talk at, finally at the end about the most pernicious myth about Christmas. And so there's your, there's your bait. There's your reason to pay attention to the last possible second. Ha ha ha, now I've got you. So the biggest modern myth about Christmas, I think, is a modern myth, the biggest one, is that it didn't happen. Um, actually, the biggest myth going around is that Jesus is not a historical person at all, and the entire account in every detail is all fabricated. This is one of those conspiracy-type theory things where it's really hard to get people to shake away from the idea. Once they believe that Jesus didn't exist, no amount of evidence would ever convince them otherwise. Because there's, there, these are people who casually throw massive amounts of faith at obscure ideas. Like, well, I think that the Romans invented Christianity so that they could control the masses. And you're like, even though in many ways it's very un-Roman Christianity. They invented a Jewish religion started it in Jerusalem. Um, that's really what, and they use Jews to spread it throughout their, their, like, this doesn't make any sense, you know. It's completely non-Roman. In fact, it caused people to refuse to say, hail Caesar. Um, it it, it kind of backfired, in other words. But it doesn't matter, because once people absorb these types of myths, it's very difficult to disabuse them of those things. There's more evidence for the historicity of Jesus than there is for pretty much any other ancient person in history. So if I consistently say that Jesus didn't exist, I have to also say Alexander the Great didn't exist. Caesar, Augustus, for instance, didn't exist. I mean, you name it, he didn't exist. <laughs> what about Josephus? No, that guy didn't exist. <laughs> you know, nope, none of these guys existed. And pretty much history started about five minutes ago, is pretty in my mind, because I'm going to have this much denial about the facts of history. Um, Jesus' life has more evidence for it than these other characters, as well as more impact in the world than any of these other people. Wow, he's, he's had a, a lot of impact for an imaginary person. He really has changed the face of the planet Earth in more ways than we could shake a stick at for an imaginary person. So that's probably the biggest myth, is that one. And I'm not going to work too hard to debunk it as much as I would say, um, find me a piece of evidence that says Jesus doesn't exist, and then I'll respond. Because it's difficult when people want you to make their case for them and prove it wrong. Because they're not able to do research. Um, the next one would be, of course, that Christmas happened on December 25th. Now, most of us know that this is very unlikely. We, we doubt that the, that the birth of Christ happened. Uh, we don't know, but we doubt that it happened on December 25th. Very much not likely. Uh, the location of the shepherds with their sheep out in the fields at night, it, this makes it, it seems unlikely that it's in the middle of winter at that point in time, that they're out in the fields sleeping you know, overnight with their sheep. Now, it's possible. It's possible, but it makes it a little bit less likely. One theory, though, is that the reason why December 25th is celebrated is, and I go into more detail about this in the last, last year, so I won't cover too much, but the idea is that perhaps this was the conception of Christ was around this time. Now, this isn't something we know. It's rather a theory. So based on the idea that Jesus' actual birth was in September, that you go back nine months and you've got 
a December conception that this is this is a uh, when the when the message would have come to Mary and when Jesus would have supposedly been conceived. Another theory about December twenty fifth is that it may have been when the when the Magi arrived, when these wise men actually show up and they greet Christ. That that was perhaps on uh, December twenty fifth. We really don't know. But here's something we do know. December 25th is not related to Mithras or Osiris or Saturnalia or any of these other pagan festivals or deities or anything like that. Um, although, and I go into much detail last time about this, but I'll just, let me just put it this way. You're one step away from believing Jesus didn't exist if you think that, that, that Osiris was born on December 25th and, and he had 12 disciples and he performed miracles and all this other stuff that basically was made up by one guy when he was hopped up on acid and made a movie called Zeitgeist and put it up on YouTube for all the uh, uncareful individuals to believe. Anyways, so that goes on. Now, on the other side of things, there are those, th- those are pretty much non-Christians attacking Christianity. But now this is, this is sort of a Christian attack on the way we celebrate Christmas oftentimes around the world nowadays, which is Christmas trees. I thought that this was not even worth addressing when I've talked about Christmas in the past because I thought this was such an abuse of scripture that I wasn't going to bring it up. But I've had close people to me who were sort of fooled by this passage, Jeremiah 10. And you should turn there, Jeremiah 10. Here's the question. Does Jeremiah 10 forbid the use of Christmas trees and specifically label it as an ungodly function of idolatry? In Jeremiah 10. I've met several believers who felt that this was the case. I've encountered them. And usually when I take them to the passage, they go, oh, I hadn't seen that. And then they're fine. Because it's the passage quoted out of context. And first we'll just quote it without the rest of the context. And you'll see why people think this is where the Bible's refuting Christmas trees. Although we have every reason to believe Christmas trees didn't exist in Jeremiah's time, you know, uh, 2,500 years plus years ago. So it says, hear the word, Jeremiah 10, 1, hear the word which the Lord speaks to you, O house of Israel. Thus says the Lord, do not learn the way of the Gentiles. Do not be dismayed at the signs of heaven for the Gentiles are dismayed at them. In fact, just pause, side note. This is my verse why I didn't freak out about blood moons that just happened last year. Why? Just me personally, I know other people I respect who were really excited about blood moons and I'm just like, you know what? Don't be dismayed at the signs of heaven. I do think that the the star that the Magi follow was a very special exception because there was a specific information from God that they were going off of. But other than specific information, I try not to flip out. I mean, every every 10 minutes, there's some special celestial event happening in the sky. And if you're into astronomy, you can find like, well, Jupiter's never had its moons lined up quite like this. You know, there's always some reason to be excited. And, and I would rather not be dismayed at the signs of heaven. Um... Verse three, so then it says, for the customs of the peoples are futile, for one cuts a tree from the forest, the work of the hands of the workmen, with the axe. They decorate it with silver and gold, they fasten it with nails and hammers so that it will not topple. They are upright like a palm tree and they cannot speak, they must be carried because they cannot go by themselves. Do not be afraid of them, for they cannot do evil, nor can they do any good. This is the verse that's used, typically just verse 3 and 4, or maybe 3, 4, and 5. And then they say, see, therefore, Christmas trees are are evil. Well, as we read the rest of Jeremiah 10, you'll see this is not about a tree in your house. It's about an idol shaped from wood in your house. And part of the evidence is actually in the passage I just read. Let's look at it again. It says in verse 3, For the customs of the people are futile, for one cuts a tree from the forest, 
the work of the hands of the workmen. Now, a tree simply cut down and placed in your living room has not been worked by a workman. No, you take a tree, you work it, but with you know the workman, the craftsman gets his hands on it and he shapes it into an idol. And as we read on, we'll see this is clearly what it's talking about. And that's why it says they do not speak. Well, we weren't really expecting Christmas trees to speak. <laughs> but when you shape an idol with a mouth, but it cannot speak, it shows the folly of this whole thing. So let's continue reading. And it says, um, verse 6, Inasmuch as there is none like you, O Lord, you are great, and your name is great in might. Who would not fear you, O king of the nations? For this is your rightful due. For among all the wise men of the nations and, all, and in all their kingdoms, there is none like you. But they are altogether dull-hearted and foolish. A wooden idol is a worthless doctrine. This is all in the same context. Silver is beaten into plates. It is brought from Tarshish and gold from Uphaz, the work of the craftsmen. And the hands of the metalsmith, blue and purple, are their clothing. They are all the work of skillful men. The they is the idols. Speaking clearly of idols here. But the Lord is the true God. He is the living God and the everlasting King. At his wrath, the earth will tremble and the nations will not be able to endure his indignation. Thus you shall say to them, the gods that have not made the heavens and the earth shall perish from under, uh, from the earth and from under these heavens. He has made the earth by his power. He has established the world by his wisdom and has stretched out the heavens at his discretion. When he utters his voice, there is a multitude of waters in the heavens and he causes the vapors to ascend from the ends of the earth. He makes lightning for the rain. He brings the wind out of his treasuries. So these are the things God does as opposed to idols, which do nothing. <laughs> They make awkward coasters. Uh, everyone is dull-hearted, verse 14. Without knowledge, every metalsmith is put to shame by an image, for his molded image is falsehood, and there's no breath in them. They are futile, a work of errors. In the time of their punishment, they shall perish. The portion of Jacob, that would be God, is not like them. For he's the maker of all things, and Israel is the tribe of his inheritance. The Lord of hosts is his name. So clearly, Jeremiah 10, beginning to end, is all about idolatry. Now, if as a Christmas habit, we went into the woods and we got a tree and we cut it up and we sanded it and we covered it in metal and we named it Dave and we started bowing down before Dave and saying, Merry Christmas, Dave, Dave, and we were praying to Dave to bring us presents and to make our lives prosperous, Jeremiah 10 would apply. But if you want to put a nice smelling tree in your house and put lights on it because you think it looks nice, you really shouldn't feel bad. <laughs> it's just... There are some who've taken Jeremiah 10 and twisted it out of context, not even careful enough to just read the rest of the chapter, and then use that to bash over the head of people for having, say, a Christmas tree. Um, now, it's possible that your Christmas tree could become an idol, but I don't imagine that happens too often. Um, I really don't imagine that happens too often. So, <clears throat> so that's actually a myth. Um, there's a myth out there floating around that, that God forbids Christmas trees, specifically in the Bible. Um, in, in addition... There was no practice quite like what we do that we could even parallel it to. Um, it doesn't seem to come from pagan things. I did a lot of research on this in the past. I can't find a source that shows me that Christmas trees come from pagan traditions or, or things. And it, I wouldn't honestly freak out if it had because it's obviously lost all vestiges of paganism at this point. It's just a tree in my house. <laughs> it smells nice. So do it if you want. Don't if you don't. But don't condemn others. And then the next uh, myth. Let's talk about the wise men. Uh, the wise men. Uh, who were they? Who were they? 
Were they kings? Like the song says, you know, we three kings of Orient are. No, you're not, actually. <laughs> the wise men, according to scripture, they were not kings. They were called magi, and that's a, a di difficult word for translating. It doesn't mean magic, although our modern word magic does come from that. But that's not because they did magic. This is a modern word. There's an old Greek word called dunamis. It means power. Our modern word dynamite comes from that. But if someone had dunamis, it doesn't mean they were exploding back then because modern usages of words don't prove their meaning. No, no, this is a group of educated counselors. In fact, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, as we read about them in the book of Daniel, these were, basically, they became magi. In fact, Daniel became the head, the chief, over the magi as time progresses throughout the book. What they were is educated counselors that would come alongside the king, and then maybe they'd be reading maps or looking at whatever their sources were. It was, it was a mix of science or, you know, what you would call science back then, as well as paganism, as well as other things all kind of bundled together, and then they would try to give good advice to the king. And that was their job. They were, they were trained, educated counselors. They would learn various languages. They would learn about the arts of war. They would learn about, you know, you name it. You name it. Well, this is what these men were. They, that, that's who they were. We know that they were, there were multiple of them, but our tradition says that there were three, in particular, three. And in fact... You can know their names if you ascribe to certain traditions. Although I don't have any reason to think that these names actually go back to the men themselves. But their names are Gaspar or Casper, right? Belthasar and Melchior. Good names for your, your children, Melchior. Melchi for short. In fact, in the 12th century... <laughs> this is interesting stuff. In the 12th century, supposedly they found these wise men's skulls, their bones. They were found by Bishop Reynald of Cologne. This bishop supposedly found their skulls. You know how he knew it was them? Because their eyes were still in the, in the skulls, in the sockets of the skulls, and their eyes were fixed towards Bethlehem. So obviously this is the, this is the three wise men, you know. Then they put them on display in the great cathedral in Cologne in Europe, and they're still there. Um, this was obviously during a time when the church was all about relics. And uh, by the church, I, I don't mean um, the remnants of those who are faithful to God. I just mean that the, the visible, you know, you know what I mean. <laughs> and so we, uh, we, we have this relic thing going on, and people still go there all the time to visit and see and maybe touch these things. We have no reason to think there were three. Really, what were there? There were three gifts. There were three gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. We don't know how many of these guys there were. They, there may have been hundreds of people who came, or it might have been two. We don't know. They probably came with an entourage, a group of people, maybe to keep them safe in their travels, to carry all their stuff, and then they come, and they went where first? They go to Jerusalem first, and they meet Herod, because Herod is the king of the Jews. But then they go there, and they tell him, we've come to see he who has been born the king of the Jews. And Herod doesn't like that very much. Herod uh, was, among all things, he would murder family members to protect his throne if he even had a whiff of a feeling that they might try to take it from him. Their saying is that it was safer to be Herod's pig than it was to be his mother. Because he wouldn't maybe eat the pig, but he would kill his mom if he thought she was going against him. Um, crazy guy. Especially towards the end. So let me, let's read here in Matthew chapter 2. Matthew chapter 2 talks about the coming of these wise men or these magi. 
<clears throat> and who were they really? What was what was really going on? Well, let's read about it. Matthew 2, verses 1 and 2, it says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem, what did you notice there? The, the, the second word in that sentence is really interesting. After. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem. I mean, in, in our typical uh, portrayals of the nativity, we tend to cram all events together into one moment, but actually the wise men, they came at a later date. They didn't. They were not there when Jesus was born. It was at a later date because look what happens. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. So the moment they arrive at Jerusalem, Jesus is already born. Saying, where is he who's been born king of the Jews? For we've seen a star in the east and have come to worship him. Then down in verse 8, it says, And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the young child. And when you've found him, bring back word to me that I may come and worship him also. Then verses 9 through 11. When they heard the king, they departed. And behold, the star which they'd seen in the east went before them till they came and stood over, till they came and stood over where the young child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. And when they'd come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary, his mother, and fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their their treasures, they presented gifts to to him, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Now, there's three times where Jesus is referenced with a word, and the word is translated young child, paideon in the Greek. And that word could refer to an infant, but more likely refers to someone that's a little bit older. You would call a a five-year-old this as well. Was Jesus five? Probably not. But... He wasn't zero. You know, he wasn't like a month old or a day old or something like that, most likely. He was a little bit older. Interestingly enough, it says that they went and found him and he was in a house. He was not in the manger anymore, if you read it carefully. So he's no longer in the manger. He's in a house. He's called a young child. He's not really called an infant, different word, uh, typically speaking. And then they give him these gifts, these gifts, the gold, the frankincense, and the myrrh, and I love this because I think that these are all symbolic and this isn't just us throwing symbolism at the Bible. You would expect these gifts to be symbolic. You would expect them to have meaning behind them. This is a pretty important moment. He who's born king of the Jews and we're bringing him our gifts. So gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Well, what are they? Well, gold, gold is, is it speaks of royalty. It speaks of kingship. It speaks of wealth. It speaks of, of, of all these kind of qualities in Christ. He comes and he is the king of heaven coming to earth to dwell in and amongst us. He's the king. In fact, here we have royalty in a sense from another land coming and paying homage to him because he is the king of kings. And then you've got frankincense. Frankincense was one of the ingredients, one of the main ingredients in what was used in the temple when they burned incense before God. The high priest would take it right in even to the Holy of Holies. And so they would take this incense This incense was always burning before God, is the idea. Frankincense was involved in the recipe, but the recipe was very special. You see, nobody else in Israel was allowed to duplicate this recipe for any other cause. Here's the recipe for making the stuff for the temple. No one else can make it. And so here we have Christ. He's the king of heaven, but now he's come to what? To intercede for us, because incense represents the prayers of the saints we read in Revelation. And Christ comes to intercede for us. Now he's the king coming down. Why? So he can be this fragrant offering to God. He can go before God, our high priest, not only our king, but our high priest. And then we have myrrh. Myrrh is interesting. It was an embalming spice that they would use back then. And it's really like harsh and strange to bring an embalming spice at a birth. How odd, but how appropriate. And myrrh, what happened is you would crush it 
and then it would give off this really nice fragrance. You'd wrap it with a body, and they went to wrap Jesus with with myrrh at his death as well. So we see him at the beginning. You see myrrh at the beginning, and also at the end. Because Christ will not only come to intercede for us, but to actually be crushed for us, to die for us, and then to pave the way for us. He's going to be sacrificed for us. He's the Lamb of God. He's our He's the King of Heaven. He's our High Priest, but He's also the Lamb of God. And I think that that's the symbolism behind the gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Looking at their chief qualities, I think that's pretty neat. Pretty neat stuff. But that leads to the question: Is how did these wise men know? How did they know where to go? How did they know? And actually, for this. I would recommend you guys go check out um, a website, if you haven't seen it already, uh, called Bethlehemstar.com. Bethlehemstar.com, they've done some fantastic work. And the cool thing about it is, because of modern technology and star charts and online programs, free programs, you can double check their work for yourself. You can double check it yourself. And you can actually set the clock back and look at the night skies of Bethlehem or of, of, of places in the east like Babylon. And you can look at the night sky for a given date at a different time period, at a given year and given day, given evening. Pretty neat stuff. So they talk about the, the, the movements of different planets and stars so that it would have created this, this image that the naked eye would see that would, that would actually guide them to that place at that specific time. Really, really neat stuff. And it does end up being on Christmas, <laughs> which is just like, oh, that's kind of neat. It's kind of neat to know. Um, interestingly enough, these magi, if you trace them back a few hundred years, you get to a time when their sort of ancestors, uh, maybe not, well, possibly even racially, but also um, in line with that position of being the Magi, the, the Magi that were 600 years before them, they were in Daniel's court being run and led by Daniel. And he was, he was the chief of them all. And you're like, well, how did they know? How did they know to even look for this event? Well, we know Daniel had prophecies that he wrote down. It may be, well be that he had information that he didn't write down, but that was given for them, for those people there. And what do we learn from this? This is what I think is super cool. God works outside the Bible. It's not like the only things God has ever said are in Scripture. And I know I've, I've heard people say this, like, if God spoke, it's in the Scripture. I mean, the Bible doesn't even support that. Now, he will never go against his word. He doesn't change. He's not going to change his mind on things like this. He's not going to go against the written Scriptures. So... Um, people say you can't put God in a box. And I'll go, well, no, you can. I mean, it's right here. <laughs> God put himself in this box. And he says, this is who I am. And this is what I do. And this is how I behave. And these are my promises. And these are my statements. And they're true. So I will never violate this. But that doesn't mean that he can't speak to some, some kid in the middle of India in the year 402 and just bring him the knowledge of salvation. Why not? Why can't he do that? He did it to Abraham. Right? I mean, who's Melchizedek? Who do you think Melchizedek is except somebody who God spoke to outside the scriptures and powerfully transformed and moved in their lives? And I think it's amazing. So you get these magi and you see, man, God's at work in a pagan nation. And there's this remnant of, of faithful people in this pagan nation. And some of the magi were probably really pagan guys, but not these ones. They're coming to bow before the king of Israel and pay homage to him. And I, I think it's exciting to think that God is working. Uh, some people ask about the silent years between... Um, between the Old and New Testaments, as though God didn't do anything. As though, I mean, do we think God hasn't done anything in the past 2,000 years since the New Testament was written? In 1900 years, God's done nothing. No, of course not. He's been completely active all the time. He's always been active, like Jesus said. My father's been working until now. And I think that's, that's encouraging. That's exciting to me. Um, so then we get to angels singing. You, you know the song. Hark the herald, angels sing. Do they really? 
they, I mean, they might. The, the, I know the elders sing. We read about the elders singing in in the uh, in the book of Revelation. Angels may sing, but interestingly enough, we don't have at the birth of Christ. We don't have a rec- record of angels singing. Let's look at the passage. It's Luke chapter two. This is a, a part of this is myth here. <laughs> we, don't, we don't actually have them singing. Could they have sung? Yes, I suppose they could have, but that's not what the text says. Luke two verse thirteen and fourteen. And suddenly there was, an, there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, not singing, saying, and it specifically means speaking or shouting, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. And this is that passage. Uh, there is actually no record of them singing the information to the shepherds. Now they could have, and it works great for musicals, you know, when you're putting it into a musical. Um, but hark, the herald angels spoke. It actually would be more it would be more just accurate, just truthful. Now, what's interesting is a lot of people don't know that the angels aren't recorded as singing because we sometimes absorb theology from music as much as we do from the Bible, and and sometimes that music isn't exactly right. It's not heretical necessarily. It's just not quite particularly accurate in every way. But as many people as don't know the angels didn't sing, probably don't realize Jesus did. Did you know this? Jesus actually sang in the scriptures. There's two specific and possibly four uh, recorded spots where we see of Jesus singing. And let me read to you Matthew 26, 30. It says, and when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. When they had sung a hymn. And then word for word, same quote in Mark 14, 26. This is actually a very special moment. I mean, we're talking about the, the birth of Christ, but here is the close to the death of Christ, the night before, the night he's betrayed, before he's crucified. They sing a hymn, and then they head out to the Mount of Olives, and that's where he will be betrayed. They sing a hymn, and um, I wonder, I wonder how well Jesus sang. I wonder how good his voice was. If I'm just, just guess, I'm going to say, well, he had no beauty that we should desire him. Isaiah says, I would lean towards the idea that he was not a very good singer. Now, I'm just guessing here, but I think it fits with the humility of Christ. It fits with the overall other things that we know about him. He wasn't particularly attractive. That's what Isaiah tells us. So I think that um, there's a good chance he didn't sing very well. Could you imagine being the disciples and they're like, oh, great. Jesus is going to lead us in another song. You know, I, I really think that, you know, God deserves better worship leaders. I really think that, you know, that the quality of the, it, I mean, we're just, we're too nitpicky on these issues, I think. <laughs> would you have been able to worship with Jesus leading? Or would you be upset that it was a cappella and there weren't any instruments? Or would it bother you that he always starts it too high or too low? Um, or would you remember what it's all about? <laughs> just... And just and just worship the Lord and just worship the Lord. I I I say this because as a as a pastor, I've I've seen so many people leave churches for reasons that weren't worthy. Now here's a great reason. The Lord's leading you guys to go over here. Great, go. That's fine. That's a fine reason. I mean, God's 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 the boss. Here's not a great reason. Well, sometimes I just don't like the way that that pastor's you know you know, doesn't, he's not nice. Or, I mean, just like weird little nitpicky things that just get elevated into these giant issues. And my heart goes out to people who abandon a church for those types of issues because they go to another church where guess what they'll find? Those types of issues. 
And then they're unable to be embracing of pretty much any fellowship until they learn the lesson that the, the body of Christ is a bunch of saved sinners and um, we're not consumers, we're parts of the body. We're parts of the body. Like I belong to the body. I'm not here to be a consumer of the products that the church produces for me. I am the church. I'm here to be producing that others might consume. I'm, I'm to bring blessings to them is the idea. But I, I just wonder, I wonder if we heard Jesus, would we complain? What do we complain? Um, now, what did they sing? That's what I really want to know. It's like, what did they sing? Well, given the time of year that it was, there's a chance that they sang Psalm, from Psalm 114 to Psalm 118, maybe the whole thing or maybe some portion thereof, um, that this is what they sang because the types of songs they would sing through different parts of the year because Passover is near. And these are this is leading up to the ascension and to walking in on Passover and all that. Let me read to you. From Psalm 118, this is quite possibly something they actually sang, given the time of year. Psalm 118, verse 20, 22 through 29. It says, The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. Save now, I pray, O Lord. I, um, o Lord, I pray, sin now, prosperity. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. God is the Lord and he has given us light. Bind the sacrifice with cords to the horns of the altar. You are my God and I will praise you. You are my God and I will exalt you. Oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good, for his mercy endures forever. This may have been uh, something they sang at that, at that night. Possibly. That's kind of that's neat to me. Um, now I want to talk about another Mythmus issue, I think. And that's this poor innkeeper. I really feel bad for whoever the innkeeper guy is. And I feel like we should clear some things up. Um, in Christmas plays, the innkeeper has only one line. There is no room in the inn. And he sends them away. And in Christmas messages, pastors often beat up the innkeeper as though he sent them away, even though he could have made more room for them and he could have he could have had Jesus, but he had no room for Jesus. And do you have room for Jesus? And that preaches well. I mean, that's, that preaches, do you have room for Jesus? That's, that is important. Are you receiving Christ? But I don't think it's quite fair. Um, the Bible does not say that there was any innkeeper who rejected Jesus or sent him away. It actually says, if you're careful with it, there was no room. That's what it says. It doesn't say the innkeeper said there was no room and kicked them off. No, no. It says, let me read it to you. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Now, the inn was likely not like a Motel 6 or something like this. It was, it was probably just somebody who had a good-sized home who was taking people in. And he reached a point where he's like, yeah, we don't have any more space. And so then they were like, oh, there's no more space. So then they went to the manger. Um, I think that we should just let the scripture tell us there's no room. There's no room. You know, that's, so then the question is, why was there no room? Cause then it becomes God's design that there was no room. So then the manger becomes not like, oh, you put him in the manger, you horrible innkeeper, but rather God, you put him in a manger. Why did you do that? Why would you want Jesus to be born in this manger? And the manger itself was probably a cave, not a building. This is most likely. 
that it would be a cave and not a you know some sort of a natural structure like that rather than a building itself. I don't think it matters much either way. What matters is that he's being put in a place with really three different kinds of animals. A manger would have had three different types of creatures. Beasts of burden, beasts of burden that were that were used to serve and slave away for the owners. Beasts for clothing, like sheep and things that would be sheared or that would bring some sort of pr- produce, like a goat that you'd, you'd milk, that would bring some sort of produce to you. And then beasts for sacrifice, which would have been the, the, the highest use of an animal, would be a, uh, the beast for sacrifice. And Christ comes and he does all those for us. He comes and he is the beast of burden because he comes to be the servant of all. He came as a slave to bear all of our burdens to the cross, our sins to the cross. He also, beast for clothing, he comes and he clothes us in his righteousness. He's that perfect sheep with the perfect wool that then is sheared and then is given to us that we're clothed in his righteousness in that sense. And then, of course, he's the beast for sacrifice. Ultimately, Christ died for us. And so he's put out out there, I believe, by the will of God to talk about how humble and lowly and purposeful his coming is. Another question is, when did Jesus come? Um, some people think Jesus was born in 0, zero AD. Um, there is no 0 AD, interestingly enough. Um, it just goes from 1 BC, and the next year was 1 AD. So that makes the math a little weird when you're, when you're going from BC to AD. You have to change it by 1 because there's no 0. There's no 0 year. But Jesus was probably born between, I think, 4, even as early as 6 or as late as 2 BC. Probably. And the, the thing that makes this a little sketchy is we're not sure exactly what year Herod died. King Herod died and we're sort of trying to use this as our, our you know, decision maker for what, what year he came. I think that the Bethlehem Star people say he probably came in 2 BC. And they've done a lot of work on that and I'm not questioning that. Uh, that's for more research. Maybe some t- sometime I'll come to a conclusion on that for my own self. But um, I think that... Uh, it's good to know that he didn't come in 0 BC, just so we don't look silly. <laughs> but what's more important, though, about his coming wasn't just what year he came, but sort of the time he came in general. Um, Christ came. Let's, let's look at the picture, the big picture of when God sent his son. Jesus shows up, and he shows up 400 or so years after the Old Testament has stopped being written. It's already written. And then 400 years goes by, and God's working, but he's not giving us new prophecies and new scriptures. And then Jesus shows up. Why is there this massive space of time between Old Testament and Jesus? I think it was to establish the miraculousness of Christ's coming. You see, because the Old Testament prophesied about Jesus in great detail. You know, Genesis 22, Psalm 22, Daniel chapter 9. We, we get a lot of details about when Jesus will come and what it will be like, even where he's born in, in uh, Micah. We get even the detail of the city he's born in. We get all this stuff. And by pushing 400 years plus between the writing and the fulfillment, you know it's not rigged. You know, the guy that wrote it didn't make it happen. You know, th- th- this, is, this is pushed out. So I think that that's really significant. Prophecy is really significant there. Um, and of course, he came... And anytime he came, it would have been true that he came while we were still sinners. Christ died for us. He came to a sinful, fallen world. The world's always been pretty messed up ever since the fall. Now, I want to talk to you about the most pernicious myth. The most pernicious mythmas myth. <laughs> so you can have a Christmas instead of a mythmas. You can debunk all these myths. The most pernicious one 
that actually started in the first century that they, they started believing right away was that Jesus was just a royal deliverer, not an eternal savior. The worst myth was to miss the point of why he was coming. And there are so many who came, he'd feed 5,000 and then they come and they're like, hey, give us more food. And he goes, no, you need, you need me. I'm the bread of life. You need faith and trust in me so that you might be saved. You need your sins forgiven. And they go, oh, no, Jesus. Uh, yeah, yeah, we'll believe about your whole sin stuff when you give us more food. And they really just, they just want handouts, right? I want you to give me food. I want you to make me happy. I want you to make me healthy. I want you to make me wealthy. I want you to make me wise. I want you to make my life better, Jesus. And he says, the problem is, you're like a dying man on the operating table asking for like plastic surgery. You want a facelift, but you need a heart transplant. And unless you're willing to take this heart transplant, your facelift won't matter. <laughs> and unless we're willing to take Christ as savior, his blessings won't matter. We have to have Christ as our eternal savior. Yet the Jews often thought at the beginning introducing to Jesus and seeing him as the Messiah, that he was going to be this like royal deliverer that was going to cast off the yoke of the, of the Romans. And basically, let's make it more applicable to us, right? Make their lives better. Jesus, make our lives better. Put us on top of the world. But he wanted to come and save them from their sins. In fact, Matthew one twenty one gives a purpose statement for Jesus at his birth. It says, and uh, Matthew one twenty one, and she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. That from the very beginning, it was about salvation from sin, as Isaiah 53 says. Is Jesus here to make us happy? No. Is he here to show us what love is? Is that what Christmas is really about? To show us what real love is? No. No. Yeah, does Jesus show us what love is? Yes, but that's not, if that was all he did, then there'd be nobody in hell. If that was all he did, I just wanted to show you love. Job done. No, it was, it was not just that. It was not to bring families together. Although holidays sometimes bring families together. And that's a good, that's a good thing, hopefully. I mean, you know, sometimes it's good, sometimes it's not. But Jesus did not come to bring families together. In fact, he said that there would sometimes be families torn apart because some would choose to believe in him and some would not. He came to deal with our sin. He came to take our sin away on the cross. That um, Jesus is not a baby in a manger. He's the king of heaven. And he's coming again, and he's going to rule and reign in righteousness. And this is going to happen, and we don't know the timing of it, but it's, it's what you call imminent. It's, it's for sure. It's for real, and it's coming. The most pernicious myth about Christmas nowadays is the same one from the first century, that you could, you could suddenly throw on a veneer of Christianity on top of your life, and everything's okay. That you, oh, I know about the whole Jesus in the manger thing. I'm cool with that, like... You know, you ask a group of people, what's Christmas really about? And they'll be like, oh yeah, uh, Jesus, right? No, no, no. What is it really about? Like, what is your Christmas really about? Oh, well, I mean, I say Jesus, but not really. <laughs> like my, my Christmas is about the same thing my life is about. Ignoring God and just getting by and putting on a veneer of religion to make myself feel a little bit better about issues that only Jesus can heal if I truly open my heart and give my life to him completely. I want to cl close with uh, Colossians 3 because I think that this passage gets across the heart that God would want us to have towards Christ because there's something that happens when Jesus is not, he's not to you a helpful God 
who's going to like make my life a little better. And I don't really have to change my ways or anything like that. But, but like I sort of tip the hat to him and I accept him and I acknowledge him. And then occasionally like on at funerals, of course I'm religious, you know, and on Sundays, sometimes when I do decide to go to church, I'm, I'm religious, but I'm not all about Jesus. And there's, there's something that like, if you're not saved, you just don't get it. But if you're saved, you get it. And the, the thing is here in Colossians chapter three, this is the thing that we get. We get that Jesus is not just the one who saves us. He's our life. He's the function and purpose of our being that he, it's all consuming this, this thing of following Jesus and knowing him. And there's nothing greater or bigger or grander or more important to our hearts. And, um, and you get it if you've been redeemed, if you've been saved, it's, I don't think people have to explain it to you. <laughs> and if you haven't, then it seems like you, you can't get it. And you just look at it and you're like, I don't know. You're just a fanatic. So let's look at Colossians 3. If then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. For you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Therefore, put to death your members which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience, in which you yourselves once walked when you lived in them. But now you yourselves are to put off all these anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth. Do not lie to one another since you've put off the old man with his deeds and have put on the new man, which is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him, where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised nor uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave nor free, but Christ is all and in all. And this passage, when you really look at it in detail, you go, man, this is, Jesus is my life. He's not just, I don't just tip my hat to the, to the Jesus of Christianity. He's my life. It's an all-consuming thing. Christ, he is my life. And when he appears, I'll appear with him. And that's what it's all set on. So I fix my eyes on him. And if Christmas is the time of year when you suddenly start thinking about Jesus, something's wrong. <laughs> Most of the time, I think, as believers, we're like, oh, Christmas is here. All right. Business as usual. Like, I'm just going to, my life is about Christ. You know, I like lights. That's cool. But I'm still about Jesus. I like to use Christmas as a, a, a door opener to preach Christ to people and talk to them about the Lord. But my life should be as much about Jesus as it is on Christmas Day, as it is on Sunday, as it is on Monday and Tuesday and whatever, Saturday night. That it's all just about Christ. So the biggest myth that we want to disabuse people of is the myth that they're okay with Jesus when they're really not. Which is kind of very American. It's very American. And may, may God open our eyes to show us if there's people, if there's any of us who are not genuine, not real, in not just acknowledging, but in yielding to God and yielding to Christ and knowing the fullness of who he is. Let's pray. Um, Father, we thank you for this time in your word and this discussion. And we pray for, um, for us and anybody who may hear this message later uh, online, we just ask that you would help us to have our hearts opened to the truth of Christ, that, um, that we need him as Lord and Savior, not just as a, a helper. 
in life. We need him to be our everything. And we pray that this uh, this season we could just be witnesses and be strong in our presentation of, of the truth of Jesus Christ to others, that we'd be unafraid, unembarrassed, and uninhibited by, uh, by persecution or anything like that, Lord. May Jesus be magnified in our lives, and may we see redemption going out in Jesus' name. Amen. While I was dead, you sought me out and gave your life to me. There is